You may be seated. Thanks, worship team, for leading us this morning. Um, so I'm going to just take a minute and, and ask the Holy Spirit's help uh, here for, for myself as well as for all of us as we just dive into God's Word. God, I realize that this is um, what I'm about to jump into is something that's way bigger than me. Um, I feel the weight of declaring your word well and right that has a way that your spirit continues to move and can impact our hearts and lives. God, I don't want this to be anything of me. I want it to be all of you. And Holy Spirit, I need your help. And I pray that you would just ignite the gifts that you've given me, the abilities that I have to be able to just communicate, and God, help me to do that well. And I pray for all of our hearts in this room as we listen to what you have to say, and that you would help connect the pieces, and that you would bring hope and joy into our lives no matter how we walked into this room. You have the ability to do God-sized things, and we're begging you to do it. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we have been on a hiatus from our Acts series, and so this Sunday we're jumping back in to that series that we started back at the fall. So we saw that it was a necessary conversation for us to have to jump into our Marriage Matters series over the past five weeks. Uh, we ended that last week, and now we're jumping right back into Acts. And so uh, what I want to be able to do this morning is at the very beginning, let's do a really quick uh, overview to get us caught back up, to get our minds um, re-energized and reconnected connected with what it was that, that we've been talking about. Um, and for those of us who are brand new to the church, or maybe it's your first or second week here, this will be a great little introduction so we don't miss anything as we're just diving right on in and being able to move forward. So if you're someone who likes to plan ahead, we are going to be in Acts chapter 12. That's where we're going to start today. So you can go ahead and find your way there uh, to Acts chapter 12. We're going to be covering the entire chapter. All right, let's do a little catch up. This book of Acts is a beautiful book. It is gorgeous through and through. So from the very beginning, we see the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in a really tangible way, and we see God sweeping and establishing his church that he uses for generations and generations, and what we are gathering in today actually started back when this book was written. What God was doing then is what allows us to do what we're doing today. We see sermons that literally thousands of people give their hearts and lives to Jesus. We see the Holy Spirit manifested again in very tangible ways as people are speaking in tongues and as people are healed and as people understand things they can't understand. God did God-sized things to let the people know, I am here and I am in this movement. And we also see how the church was started and what we're going to see at the end of this book is the Apostle Paul ends up going to Rome, which is known as the ends of the earth, and the church is established in Rome because of what God was doing um, in the early first century, and what Rome did allowed it to travel over to the states where we live, which allowed it to be moving with the pioneers over to the west coast, which allows us to have Harvest Community Church today. Very general overview. 
but let's find the connection back to what it is that we're reading. I mean, this is what makes this book so beautiful to me. God did something very intentional, and he makes himself real, he makes himself massive, and he makes himself worthy of all of our worship. So, so far, what we see in this book, again, let's do a 35,000 uh, foot glance of what we've seen in just these chapters to just compare where we're going today if it matches up with the theme of what we've seen so far. So the first couple of chapters, generally what we've seen is the birth of the church. So the church, um, whenever Jesus died and when he was resurrected, the church did not exist as some type of, of any type of organization. The apostles went into hiding. They were in the upper room, uh, afraid and scared. And in Acts chapter one and two, we see the Holy Spirit coming down on them and giving them power. And God saying, I'm establishing something new um, and I want you to lead it. It is something I've been talking about throughout the whole entire Old Testament. So it's not like well, I'm coming out of thin air with this. This has been my plan all along. Here we go, let's go together. Buckle up, here we go. That's the first couple chapters. Then we get um, chapter three through six. The church is established as believers in Jesus Christ multiply and as they grow. And God confirms this with miracles and signs. So this isn't just a group of people who have a mission and a heart and have the ability to connect with people in a really energetic way and people to say, hey, I want to follow these guys because they're enthusiastic. No, the Holy Spirit showed up and miracles happened and God confirmed inside of uh, what he was doing that this is where we're going. We see this chapters three through six. Verses seven through eight, the organized church is attacked. But we see this both in Stephen's death so the first follower of Jesus we see killed for his faith in chapter 8. Then in chapter, oh, sorry, sorry, chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, we see the apostle Paul, um, who is known as Saul as this time. And he's not an apostle, and he is attacking the church. He's going out and killing people of the way, killing people of the church of God because he felt threatened. Verse 9, with the same Saul, we see Jesus give life to in a very miraculous way. Chapters 10 and 11, the church continues to grow, and it's growing way beyond the, um, the, the Jewish nation that it was established in. God is saying that this gospel message is going to non-Jewish people. These are going to the Gentiles, as Cornelius uh, was someone who was not of the Jewish descent, and we see that uh, him hear the gospel message, surrender to the gospel message. Uh, we see gift of tongues falling on him to prove to the Jewish people that God is in this, and so we continue to move forward. The church grows to the rest of the world, starts to establish something and a new identity that includes the Gentiles. Then we get to chapter 12 today, where God confirms this new identity and what he is doing in the world. So if we can look at what we've seen so far, and what we're finishing today, we're kind of finishing a bookend. So chapter 13, and where we're going next week, actually launches Paul's first missionary journey. And if you have much history with the book of Acts, you know that uh, Acts has three of Paul's missionary journeys, and that's where we're about to go. So before we can get to that, we have to finish up just this establishment, and that's what I see God doing here in this chapter. So as we comb through this chapter, uh, here's our main point for us this morning. God is not silent in what he is doing. Okay, got a question for you as we dive into this. 
Have you ever had a moment when you thought that you knew uh, what you were doing just to realize soon after that you had absolutely no clue what you were doing? So for me, it hasn't been seen more clearly in parenting three kids. There's no manual for how to raise your kids. Uh, you know, when you have your first and you're going home, like it's all fun and games. Whenever you're in the hospital, you have these wonderful nurses and uh, physicians who are helping you along the way. There's all these people to support you. And then they give you this beating life and to say, go home, good luck. Um, and you're like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. Um, and, uh, and so like, you, we're left to just kind of figured out. There's a lot of really good books, I think, that help us in parenting. There's also a lot of really bad books that help us in parenting. These are all just people expressing their opinions and their thoughts. Um, and at the end of the day, as parents, we just have to make choices. So early on, as Stacy and I, my wife and I, uh, we, we, had, we had three kids uh, in three and a half years. So we decided since we were young and poor, um, we had no money, we couldn't do any vacations, we might as well start having kids. Um, so that once we can be older in retirement age, maybe, Lord willing, we'll have a little bit more finances in the bank so we can actually travel and do something fun. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, we decided early on that, that we were going to be the type of parents to, to spank our kids. Don't judge. That's just what, what, who we are and what we decided to do. We, we heard and we read in books that if you discipline your kids consistently um, for the first five years, there's nothing magical about that. It's just transformation type stuff that if you discipline your kids in the first five years um, consistently, then whenever they get to the second you know, five years of their life, you have to dis- you'll, you'll, you'll discipline less. That, and that is, was our experience as well. And so we strived for consistency in how we parented. And being able to spank was, was one of those. You know, they went for a light switch, we smacked their hand. If they told us no, we took a step back and said, what? And then um, we came at them in a very loving way to show them that they were wrong. Um, back in 2003, my oldest son, um, or my, my oldest son was born the second coming a year and a half later, um, both of those boys had very different personalities, but they responded to discipline in the very same way. Stacey and I looked at each other. We said, it worked. We figured it out. Parenting is now something that we have accomplished two years in. We were pros. We had a book deal ready to be signed, a publisher was asking us to write a book. You know that sarcasm? Okay. Um, so um, there's a moment that I'll never forget where things changed because my daughter came along, who is totally different than my voice, started early on. And um, I'll never forget one day in the car, we were driving. She was little, teeny tiny little baby. Uh, and she decided to throw a fit. And I decided I wasn't going to have it. Um, and so I reached back in the back seat and I squeezed her cheeks and I used my dad voice and I said, no. Because um, I did that with my boys. And guess what? It worked. And so, of course, two times it worked. It's going to work with a third, right? So I squeezed her cheeks and I say, no. And as soon as I said no, I knew absolutely that was the wrong choice. 
The reason I knew it was the wrong choice is because my wife told me it was the wrong choice. Um, there was something that happened in that moment that my boys did not respond to. Uh, didn't, they didn't respond in the same way. I crushed my daughter's soul in that moment. And so we were parents who spanked our older two kids, but my daughter, I think we spanked once ever in her entire life. And my boys probably still remind me of that. Like, why did you treat her differently? Um, You know, but in all seriousness, our goal in parenting was a result, not the action. And we wanted this result of uh, of her to be be able to, to listen and obey. And discipline looked different for her. I thought I had it all figured out. Stacey and I were like, we're good at this parenting thing, right? And then all of a sudden we realized we had no clue what we were doing. We have to adjust and we have to figure out and ask a lot of questions along the way right? Life is full of these moments of us having to re-strategize and ask really big, big, deep questions because we think we knew where we were headed and we realized maybe this isn't the same path. Or maybe it is. We just got to get to this difficult thing. The apostles, the founders of the church could have been going through something very similar to this at this point where we're going to read in Acts chapter 12. They followed Jesus as closely as they could. They had a relationship with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, so they knew um, what his voice sounded like, and they just really wanted to do everything that God was leading them to do. They wanted to be obedient, and they wanted to, to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They have now seen their friend Stephen die because of their movement. And what we're going to see today in today's text, another one of their friends is going to experience death as well. The question arises, are we doing the right thing? And it has to, right? Human nature calls us to, to question at this point. I've seen two of my friends die, and is this cause worth it? Is it right? Are we doing the right things? How can I have the confidence to continue to move forward? And this is where our big idea comes into place. God is not silent on the things that he is doing. So, Let's jump right on in to Acts chapter 12. And what I want us to see is this first point. The next potential blow to the early church. Let's read this. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Herod. Who is Herod? This is uh, King Herod. There are three Herod. There are Herod the Great. There are his his son, Herod. So this Herod was the one who was actually um, king whenever Jesus was born and was a part of putting Jesus to death. And then uh, this third Herod, Herod Agrippa, is the one that we're talking about now is the king um, over, over Israel. He's the Jewish person who is king over Israel. The thing was, is he didn't grow up um, in, in Israel. He actually grew up in Rome, but he's from the Jewish descent. And so uh, Rome is the one who ruled the world. Remember Pontius Pilate from the death of Jesus? That was the Roman uh, guard or the Roman person who was watching over this, this state, right? And so Rome has a really big hand on it. And this Herod has been trained in the, uh, the ways of Rome, but yet he's a Jew. Okay. At this time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some and belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to also arrest Peter. 
This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him out, of, uh, out to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay. James has now been put to death for his faith and his commitment to Jesus. This James is not the James who wrote the book of James. That's James, the brother of Jesus. This is James the apostle, um, the, the brother of John Mark, the person who wrote the book of Mark in scripture. But so he's a really important uh, apostle, someone that we've seen in the gospels, and now he has put, been put to death, to death for his faith in Jesus. And um, as we're, we're seeing this uh, play out, the questions have to be arisen. Have we, are we doing the right things? Our friends are continuing to die. Peter is now in prison. When I was reading this, I'd ask myself, so why wasn't Peter killed immediately? If, John, or if James was um, arrested and killed, why is Peter left? And, and we see in the text that James was arrested and killed. It pleased um, the, the people. And so Herod continued. Now, once he continued, it was the time of the unleavened bread, which was a seven-day festival leading up to Passover. And there was laws within that time period that you couldn't, um, you couldn't put someone to death inside of that time period. So Herod was waiting for that time period to end with the Passover feast, and then he could bring Peter out to the people and kill him. That was his intent because of what he had seen with James. Were the early church fathers on the right track, or did they miss something? Remember, God is not silent in what he's doing, which I think what we see next is very important. So we jump over. Peter's fate confirms what God is doing. Let's just look in Acts chapter 12, verses 6. We'll read um, 6 through 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and uh, sentries before, uh, before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light um, a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And then chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put your sandals, and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that, um, that he, sorry, he did not know that what he was um, being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When they, had pressed, sorry, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and opened for them its own accord. And they went out and they went among um, one of the streets and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent the angel to rescue me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people uh, and what they were expecting. supernatural acts. What do we do with stories like this? These things preach well. We can read in the Gospels of Jesus healing people, raising people from the dead. 
We can read in the book of Acts, Peter uh, um, having an angel meet him in prison, taking his chains off and quietly leading him through the gate outside of the city walls to a safe place to where he can go free. I mean, is this just a good story or is God doing something God-sized here? What do we do with this today when we live in a time, in an area, in a space where we don't see this very often or never in our lifetime? What I believe to be true deep down in my core because of my relationship with Jesus is that everything that we read here in this narrative is something that God laid out for his intent and his purpose. It happened just the way that we see it here. It's very real. And we see God do this. This is not just one-offs of God showing off. When do we see God doing these massive movements of healing people or doing um, massive things for his name's sake that kind of lead us to take a step back to be like, that was strange. I don't see that in my life, but I'm just believing that this was real. I mean, God has an intent and a purpose in what he is doing. Let's go all the way back. I'm just going to give a couple of examples. I'm going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis where we see Abraham and his wife Sarah, before they ever have any kids, are traveling around and God has already told Abraham, you are my chosen person who is going to um, make the nation of Israel established. You're going to have as many descendants as the sand on the sea. God has given Abraham a promise. The nation of Israel will start with you. And then we see Sarah and Abraham go to Egypt. And we see Pharaoh catch the eye of Sarah and be like, I want her. And Abraham being scared. And when Abraham is scared, Pharaoh says, hey, who is this person? We know that Abraham lies and says, it's my sister, whenever it's really his wife. Why does he do that? Well, there's some things that we can connect here. But what God does next is huge. Pharaoh takes Sarah to be his wife before any of that can happen God, the presence of God shows up to Pharaoh and says, do not move forward with this woman. This is not yours. This is the wife of Abraham. God stepped up. Why? Because God already promised Abraham and Sarah. Could God do something different? Absolutely. But his promise was Abraham and Sarah. And, God, um, and if Abraham and Sarah didn't have Isaac, and Isaac didn't have Jacob, and Jacob didn't have, you know, we go on and on and on to begin the birth of the nation of Israel, then the gospel story that God had predetermined from the beginning of the time wasn't going to happen. And God said, this can't happen. So to preserve the gospel, God stood up to Pharaoh and said, do not move forward with this woman. God is doing a God-sized thing. God steps in and says, no, because this will change the gospel. Secondly, in the book of Exodus, we see Moses, in another miraculous story, talk to a bush. When was the last time you've talked to a bush? In your right mind, when was the last time you've talked to a bush? When was the last time God spoke to you through a bush, right? These are not normal things, but God stepped in to have this conversation with, with Moses to say, you will lead my people out of Egypt. They will not stay enslaved there anymore. It is time for them to leave, to go establish themselves in the nation of Israel, right? I have promised this land for them. Take them to this land. And God spoke to Moses through this bush. Moses tried every tactic possible to tell him no, but God said, I'm not letting you say no. This is my story and you're a part of it. Let's move forward together. And we know the story from then on out. God said, this isn't a choice because my gospel is at stake here. 
Let's fast forward to to Jesus. Jesus enters the scene and does a thousand crazy miracles. God is stepping into history and says, yes. He steps in and says, yes, this is my son. And I'm going to show you who he is and that he's not just operating in his own power and doing his own thing. He's not a Joseph Smith of the world, right? He is my son. And through these miracles, these signs and wonders, I'm going to prove it to you. And so Jesus is the son of God. We see it because God says yes about Jesus because the gospel's at stake. On the day of Pentecost, when when the tongues of fire fell on the men and they could speak different languages without them knowing that language, God steps in and says, yes, because I'm confirming what I'm doing. The the, the Jewish nation says this isn't real or right. They've even put my, my son to death. And I'm telling you, I am in this and I'm proving it by my spirit falling in such a magnificent way to prove, yes, I am in this. Acts 10, again, whenever we see the the, um, salvation move to the Gentiles, which is a massive thing if you were a Jew in that time period, that it moved beyond the Jewish people into the Gentiles, God brought the gift of tongues again to just prove, I am in this. This is where the gospel is going. Champion it. We're going to see in Acts 15, the wrestle, when we get to there in a couple weeks, the wrestle of the Jewish people, like, do we accept the Gentiles? Do we not? Because this is such a massive movement. God is saying, I'm here. Yes, because it opens up the gospel to the entire world. And in today's text, we see God save Peter. God steps in and says, yes, because it confirms the establishment of the church that I am doing and that I'm establishing and the gospel needs to move forward. So you're absolutely doing the right thing. James is dead and that is a tragedy relationally, we don't know what to do with that if you're Peter or anyone else who is friends with James. But God is stepping in to say, I'm not leaving you alone. And I'm not letting you go in silence or just blind faith. I'm proving to you that I am in this. He doesn't, he's not silent. He's doing something huge. We, we may ask, why do these extremes exist in the Bible? Because God's glory, because God's story is at stake. These are not just stories of God doing miraculous things to show off. And this is not to say that God is done doing miraculous things. I'm not a cessationist to say that the Holy Spirit's done and we're not going to be able to see these ever again. That is not what I see in Scripture. But there is a point to all the things that we're reading and that we're seeing because God is planned out and purposeful. These have extreme purpose. Even today, God is not silent in what he's doing for us. We may not see the get out of jail free card like we see with Peter, but God is continuing to prove himself over and over again, and he does it in such personal and intentional ways with us. But we're going to come back to that in just a few moments when we end. How can we make this personal and applicable? So, What God was doing in his church, what God was doing in his church was to confirm life. Was to say, um, sorry, what God is doing in his church always confirms life. That's what I was meaning to say. What God is doing in his church always is confirmed by life. We see in the beginning of the book, Joy is experienced. 
as salvation continues and that the church is established. Um, we see salvations come whenever Jesus is preached and proclaimed. When miracles happen like this, life is preserved, right? You may say, but what about James? And what about Stephen? Their life wasn't saved. My, my point is not that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a promise of preserved life, physical life. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what we do have is joy and salvation, which leads to us pursuing Jesus, which pursu- uh, uh, leads us to, to know and to follow Jesus and have that connection, that personal point of relationship with him. He did not leave us alone to decide what is right or wrong. God was walking with us every step of the way. He is walking with us every step of the way. And we see this by good fruit. We see this all throughout scriptures. Judge a tree by its fruit. If it's producing good fruit, then God is in it. When the questions arise, we see God is in this. Let's see what he does with Peter. He answers the prayers. It's not about Peter's life not being preserved as much as it is about the prayers of the saints saying, where do we go with this? Let's keep moving in this direction for the growth of the church. God's doing something huge. Third point I want us to see is that Herod's death further confirms what God was doing. Let's just look at um, verse 12, verses 21 to 23. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat among the throne, and delivered an, an ordination uh, to, to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. A lot of really good imagery there to put in our minds as we end today. James was killed. It's tragic. Because a life and a friend is taken. But God, preserving Peter, says you're on the right track. Be a part of my story. I want to use you to do things that you didn't think you could ever do. And to further confirm it, let's see where the fruit is not. It wasn't that Herod got sick and died, or Herod died in battle. Herod put himself in the place of God. His arrogance raised him up. And God allows people to live every single day who do that. It's not like God just does that to everyone who speaks those kinds of words, but God had a message. This is not the way. This is the way. This is not. And we're going to see it through the lack of fruit through the death of Herod, to further confirm exactly what God was doing. Okay, let's wrap it up. This last thought, this last question, what does this mean for us today? The first thing that I want us to see is ourselves in this. Protecting, preserving, and spreading the gospel story is the most important thing to God. He's been doing that since Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered into the world. He was protecting, preserving, and spreading the gospel. We get to Abraham, we get to Moses, we get to, um, we, we get to Israel being in the promised land, we get to the judges, we get to the prophets, we get to Jesus, we get to all these stories, and God has one aim, 
protecting, preserving, and spreading the gospel story, which leads people to joy and life that many of us in this room have experienced in our relationship with him. So if this is what God is about, then as a mature follower of Jesus, this is the thing that we should be about too. Regardless if my life is like James or if my life is like Peter's, in other words, if I die like James did or if I'm preserved like Peter, which on the side note, Peter ended up dying for his faith later, um, it, it doesn't matter because what matters the most is letting the person I love the most or love the most know how they could find joy and life in this world. And Jesus is the one that it centers on and what it is all about. So that is the first thing that I want us to see in the midst of all that is for those of us who are growing in our faith and consider ourselves mature um, followers of Jesus, let's see this and let's live into this end. And if you're someone who's trying to figure out Jesus or brand new to the faith, be researching that and asking questions about this because this is what I'm convinced scripture leads us to see and where we're going as Jesus followers. Second, we're in relationship with God as we're in this relationship with God, he will never let you alone and leave you to go through it by yourself. He is not silent in what he is doing. Sometimes his answer is wait. Sometimes his answer is no. He's not going to take you always to the place that you want to go. But the reality is, is that God is there. God is real. God is massive. God is beautiful. God is active. God is living God is invested in you. And so how are we letting him speak to us? This is with this, where this, as we're in relationship with him, is so key. If we're not in relationship with him and we expect him to do God-sized things, we're missing the point. That's like cursing your parents every single day that you're with them, then, make, then expecting them to pay for your college. Maybe they will. Don't expect it. God can do whatever he wants, but... Don't miss out on this beautiful relationship. Third, cultures will shift and change. This is really real. It doesn't matter which generation you belong to. People groups have always seen culture shift and change. And here's the reality that I think it's good for us to be reminded of. If we look at church history, church history will also tell us that um, that, that we don't always get it right. Like, let's look back to pre-Reformation. The church didn't get it right. They got off. They started focusing on things that was not biblical and scriptural, and that's what the Reformation was needed to be able to say, hey, let's get back to scripture. We are so far away from the Reformation now. Is everything that we're doing, everything that God wants us to do, what questions are we asking ourselves? I'm not saying we're doing anything wrong, but I'm saying we gotta ask the questions because we're human at our heart. And God will not leave us alone. Uh, he will not be silent in what it is that he's doing. And whatever God is doing, when we pursue him, he will make it clear to us what is right by the fruit that we see and the things that we experience and the things that we do. We just need to be asking the questions and God will be answering. He answers with our conscience as we're reading through scripture. He answers through community. He answers as we pursue him. We cannot be afraid of pursuing him as we ask these questions. What is promised to us is that God will always show us who he is because he's alive, because he's living, because he's massive, because he's loving, because he's good. What we see in this text 
is life versus death. One pursuit leads to life. The other pursuit leads to death. We see it physically. We also see it spiritually. One pursues, or is, leads to spiritual life, joy, salvation, things that we can hang our hats on, even though we're not promised these other um, life-preserving like, things. We have spiritual life or we have spiritual death. Things that lead to salvation versus things that lead people away from ever knowing and having life in Jesus. I've said it a hundred times today, I feel like, but I want to say it again. God is real. God is active. God is ever-present, and he doesn't leave you alone. The book of Hebrews even tells us that he meets us in our pain and in our weakness. He empathizes with us when we go through hard things, when we're asking hard questions, because he's walked through everything that we have, that we're walking through, and he meets us where we are, and he walks with us through it, if you allow him to. So will we allow ourselves to be led by Jesus? Will we allow ourselves to pursue him and to find life? Will we be a part of the church movement moving forward that glorifies and honors the name of Jesus? Church, I sure hope we are because that's where life is found. I believe in us. And I believe in um, that we continue, uh, can continue to make the name of Jesus known in our city and in our world. So let's do it well as we pursue him as Jesus continues the growth of his church. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up. God, thank you so much for your word to us. God, so many approaches that we could take to a text like this. We could take it verse by verse and pull it apart and be able to see all the beautiful things in James's death and all the beautiful things in Peter's preservation of life, and all the beautiful things uh, in, in Herod's downfall, and just point to those things to grow our knowledge of you, to see how massive you are, and you are. And also, God, we could just take the 35,000-foot approach and say, God, what are you doing here, and how can we follow you and pursue you? Holy Spirit, we need you to guide us and direct us because we are human and we always get off. We always pursue ourselves over you. That is human nature. And God, we ask your forgiveness for it, and we expect that we do that. We're not ashamed when we do because we just expect it, but God, we're not okay with it. So lead us, God, to be able to live for you and to surrender ourselves to you constantly as we remind ourselves of your story. Lead us to worship you now in song, in spirit, and in truth. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.